The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. wanted to mention something our children have done as they've been part of the lessons that have been learned about stewardship. Their Sunday school classes and the youth Sunday school classes have looked at stewardship, tried to teach some elementary principles. One of the things the children did was bring in pennies, a roll of pennies being three inches long. They were challenged to bring their height in penny rolls. Now, I think some of those came in loose and uh, didn't know whether it equaled their height or not. But you might be interested to know that the children's ministry received $390 worth of pennies. That's 195 feet. So you figure out uh, how, what height of children that is. But thank you, children, for what you've learned and what you've practiced in contributing to our stewardship lessons. And we continue with that now for one more time to look at this subject of stewardship on this Sunday that we've called a Commitment Sunday, and I'll say more about that at the end of the sermon. Looking at a chapter teaching very deliberately about stewardship, 2 Corinthians 9. A couple weeks ago, I looked at 2 Corinthians 8, in which Paul gives the instruction for the gathering of an offering, which is to relieve people that are literally going through famine, fellow Christians. And he gives instructions and challenge to the Corinthian congregation. Chapter 9 begins with some more words about that and how the final collection is to be wrapped up. And then in verses 6 through 15, which I'll read, Paul brings his concluding remarks on this subject, which have a lot to do with us. Listen to God's word, 2 Corinthians 9, beginning at 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound to every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. 
Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word, which unlike the word of man, is always and forever true. This morning, I'm reminded that in some sectors of Christianity, what some call the prosperity gospel is still alive and well. This form of teaching tends to take a basic general truth of the Bible and twist it and make it specific in a way that it becomes much like a heresy. What it says, what movements, for example, like the Word of Faith movement or others you may have heard of will teach, says something like this, if you will just give generously to our ministry, God will direct funds and goods and riches back to you so that you will receive several times over whatever money you give to us. Now, of course, that can become very manipulative when used in certain ways. And I say to you that that is not supported by the Bible, even though there is Scripture that does talk about the prosperity of those who give. It is not a prosperity, I do not believe, that in any way tries to guarantee that those who give are going to dollar for dollar, become richer because of giving. In fact, that can be almost used like a type of voodoo religion, and it is something that preys upon the poorest class of society. Instead, Scripture does direct us not to look forward and say, if I give, what will I get? Rather, it asks us to look back and say, since God has given, how should I respond in the future, in joy and in thanksgiving to him. But we are considering today what we might call the bounty or the rewards or blessings for those who are generous in giving to the Lord's work. There are blessings, but they're not about direct, selfish greed or enrichment. And this section here of 2 Corinthians 9 contains some of these things. It expands on earlier Bible principles, for example, from what is said in Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. We read there, one person gives freely and yet grows richer, while another withholds what he should give and suffers want. Whoever brings blessings to others, Proverbs says, will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Now, if you want to be crass about it, you could say, there it is. It's promised that people who give are going to get richer. The question is simply whether it is to be applied in some kind of a crass way or it rather is speaking more broadly. In terms of the abundance and the abounding grace of God that goes to work in the life of a giver. I want you to see as we look here today several blessings that God does promise to a generous steward. And one of them is this, I'll call it joy in planting for a spiritual harvest. The theme of that is right away in verse 6, summarized. Whoever sows, S-O-W, plants seed sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That seems very obvious if you're a gardener or a farmer. One of my Amish neighbors gets his mule team hitched up this time of year and plants five acres ready for corn. He's going to have a five-acre crop. If he plants 40 
he's going to have a more abundant crop. That's pretty simple. It doesn't seem to take great intelligence to say the more bountifully you plant, the more you'll reap. And yet, people don't seem to think of that in terms of their giving. They tend to think more, well, what does God require? What's the minimum I can get by with? And God asks, why would you be satisfied with the minimum if you have the ability to do more? For years, I had read the verses in Psalm 126, verse 5, without probably comprehending what was being spoken about when Psalm 126 says, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. I was probably wondered if I thought about it at all, why would somebody weep? Why would you cry as you planted a crop? And then I read an account of a missionary named Del Tar, who ministered for years in the Sahel region of East Africa. This is up near the Sahara Desert in East Africa, a very arid place where nearly all the rain that falls in a given year falls in a four-month period, May to August. So if you're going to have a crop, if you're going to raise food, you've got to plant in early May. Hopefully the ground can be tilled and you'll get enough rain in that four-month period and you'll get a crop because the rest of the year, the ground is baked like concrete. Now, the Sahel is a very poor area. There's a lot of hunger. And Mr. Tar, the missionary, tells of the fact that through the winter and into the early spring, before planting happens in early May, he said there are many children with bellies swollen with, with real hunger and even people dying. And he said, here's something that's, that's not an uncommon experience. A little boy will be playing in the family's shed or storage area, and the boy will come running to his parents all excited because he stumbled on something in the shed, and he comes and says, Father, I found a, a full bag of wheat in the shed. Father, we're hungry. Have mother grind this up so she can make bread and feed us. But of course, you may know what the boy found. The father would tell him, son, I can't do what you're asking, and please don't disturb that bag. That is our seed grain. We need that bag because in a matter of weeks, I'm going to be planting it in the ground, and without it, we won't eat this year. And so this missionary tells of the experience he's had in the Sahel in, in times of extreme hunger in the spring of children with, with bellies just groaning because they haven't had enough to eat, watching their parent go out with a bulging bag of grain and walking up and down the field, throwing it away as far as they're concerned, throwing away that which they would say they're, they're old enough to know could feed them. And the missionary says, I've seen fathers with tears running down their faces at the reaction of their hungry children watching the planting go on. And yet, of course, if that doesn't happen, the family will probably die because they will have no crop, no grain to eat for the whole year. And so the family has to make a decision and a sacrifice that feels painful in the moment of doing it, literally casting something away as if throwing it out, giving up control to it, scattering it on the ground where it disappears and, of course, it has that short period of germination before green stalks begin to 
to come up. If you were a brand new novice farmer and had no experience with agriculture, you might think, what am I doing? I'm giving away that which is so valuable and precious. But if you're an experienced farmer, of course, you look at it and you say, look, I'm investing here. I'm planting here because of the expectation that there will be growth. And so even as I weep, perhaps, at the loss, I smile with joy in my hope and expectation for what is about to come. Now, our text says there's an analogy there to giving. We are like those who sow a crop with our gifts as they go to support missionaries and evangelists and the planting of churches and the schools and seminaries and orphanages and all the different things that spread the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel of the cross. You know, there's a sense in which you say, well, I could use this. I could do something with this. Why would I do that with it and just seem to lose it? And yet, there's the understanding that this sowing of seed, these dollars that I send, are in fact being invested in the only eternal things that are going to last. Everything I buy with every other dollar is food, and I'll need more food. It's a car, and I'll need another car. It's a house that will need constant maintenance. It's whatever. It's not permanent. And here's the seed being planted to do something permanent. I do that, therefore, in a cheerful, privileged, and even lavish way in the hope of sharing and seeing one day the harvest of what God will do. Now, let's, let's make it clear. We don't see a lot of the direct harvest. You know, I, I hear people say, oh, we give all this money to missions. How do we ever know what that does? Well, I just tell you, on this earth, maybe you're not going to know much of it, but I think somehow God is going to give us to understand in heaven what our investments have done. Actually, Luke spoke, remember, weeks ago when Jesus talked about giving what is not your own, what you should invest, and he he said that, that others might welcome you into heavenly dwellings. You wonder how they were going to understand that. Are we someday going to honestly make the connections, connect the dots and say, look at this person, this man from Peru. Look at this one-time child from Kenya. Look at this man who grew to be a pastor in Germany because Steve Beck taught him and we supported that. Look at these things. They're eternal. They're lasting. They're the harvest of God. And so there should be great joy in anticipation of being part of that whole activity of harvesting. Well, besides that, a second blessing reserved for the generous steward, I think, is this in our text. Discovery of God's mysterious sufficiency for continued giving. That's a long-sounding point. Discovery of God's mysterious sufficiency for continued giving. I will admit there's a certain mystery about this. The word sufficiency is here. The word abounding is here. And there's an emphasis put on this, not that God is going to enrich you so that you can be a rich person, not that God's going to give back to you so that you can drive a nicer car than ever before or have more luxuries around you. Look at verse 8. Mull it over in your mind. It says, God is able to make grace abound to you. It doesn't say cash. It says grace, and grace has a lot of expressions. God is able to make grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency 
in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There seems to be a promise here that God is saying, when I find a channel through whom my blessing can flow, through whom gifts can flow to support my work, I'm going to keep supplying that channel. And and there's a sense some people would reduce this perhaps to a phrase and say, you cannot outgive God. He has a way, it's hard to explain. I know there'd be those listening to me right now who'd be skeptical about it and say, I don't believe it. You almost have to live it to understand it. But there are very few people that have taken God's tithing principle and offering principle seriously in their lives who would turn back and say, you know what, my life has been dreadfully deprived because I did that. Once you live it, once you experience it, you see God working through you. He, he in a sense, sees, well, I can trust you to be a steward, and so I'll make you a steward of more. And at least you will never say, I had to rob my family of food on the table or a warm house or something else in order to give to God. This word sufficiency He gives us sufficiency. We sang it in that great first hymn. All I have needed, your hand has provided. This doesn't say crass enrichments. It does say that his store of resources is always going to be there for you to be a generous, obedient steward. Now that, you know, I haven't said much in these messages about the misfortunes that we experience economically. This certainly doesn't say that the generous steward is never going to get let off from work or the generous steward's company is not going to close or that you are going to come to some place where perhaps through nothing of your own control, you're in a really tight place financially. And of course, we have to add, there are many times when we get in tight places by our own misdeeds, our own foolish decisions, our own taking on of poor debts that we shouldn't have encountered. But there are many times today, especially when it's not someone's fault, it's circumstances beyond their control. And you say, well, how's God taking care of me? I tried to be a good steward. Now I've been unemployed for a year and I'm getting nowhere. Does God have promises of sufficiency? I would say they're harder to believe and you have to walk with him in faith, but he indeed does. Philippians 4.2 says, my God will supply all your need. And you know what? We always think our need is, is bigger because we include our desires in our need. And we say, well, God, you know, unemployment can't live on that. Well, as a matter of fact, a good manager could. Yes, you'd have to cut, you'd have to scrimp, you'd have to be very careful. But our God supplies needs, true needs. He doesn't leave his children. There's a verse in the Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 37. I can't think of the exact reference. It says, I've, I've never seen a righteous man or his children begging bread. Well, what does that say to the poor of the world? I mean, these are big subjects. There are a lot of poor people in the world, and some are people of faith. And they're victims of national catastrophe or of mismanagement or of dictatorships that have taken the people's food and used it to buy guns or whatever. There's a lot of foolishness going on with economics in the world. But God has a way of caring for his people when they put his interests at the top of the list. There's a wonderful model of this in a story you know probably about the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 
17. I think we tend to discount this story because there's actually a miracle involved. If you remember the story, Elijah the prophet came to the house of a widow who had very, very little. In fact, she just had enough food to make a meal or two, and that was going to be it. She had nothing after that. But she welcomed the prophet and let the prophet be at her table and share those last morsels of food. As a result, the Lord granted a miracle. The widow's vessel that held flour, she'd take it out, you know, and make bread or whatever kind of bread they made in those days, and she'd go back and there'd be more flour. She had her olive oil, she'd use that to mix with the flour, she'd go back, there'd be more olive oil. Now you say, that's a miracle. I don't think we're looking for God to, you know, miraculously, you know, I write a check for $1,000 and miraculously there's $1,000 back in my bank account. I'm not saying that will happen. I'm not saying God is going to work a miracle, but that's an example, a model of God's sufficiency because what did God do there? He did not back a semi-trailer up to the widow's house and say, get some men to unload all the bounty of luxuries and sides of beef and and pork and everything. It wouldn't be pork in in a Jewish house, but whatever, lambs, you know. You won't be able to have a storehouse big enough for it. He didn't do that, did he? He gave her a sufficiency, enough for today, and tomorrow there'd be enough for tomorrow. And that's the way God tends to work in our lives. He sees when there's an outlet of giving and generosity and grace, and he rewards that outlet by giving us a joyful, trusting, faith-filled life of thanksgiving and dependence on him. When there's no outlet, what's that person like? The person who holds on, who says, oh, I've got to have it all for me. You know what that person becomes like. Selfish, discontented, angry, self-consumed. Let me tell you something. Maybe you won't like this. Maybe it steps on a toe somewhere. I'm not intending to step on a toe, but I'll tell you this is a truth. That those who complain the most about preaching and teaching on biblical stewardship, it's almost universally true, are the people who do the least giving. Givers don't complain because givers have seen God work in their life. They've seen this balance, this sufficiency that God establishes when his priorities are first. Now, finally, I mentioned a moment ago that word thanksgiving, and that's the third blessing, a rising chorus of thanksgiving comes before God. We see this in verses 11 and following here. The word thanksgiving appears several times. And it, it seems as if Paul is saying, look, as you give, those who receive the benefits, whether it's food for them in a famine, the gospel preached for them, whatever it is, they're going to have thanks to God. They may not know you. They may never see you. But the interconnectedness of the family of God is going to be expressed as they glorify God for what a gift does in their presence and what it means to them. Praise rises to God as his people act as faithful stewards. And the church is united. I say again, you know, you think of Dr. Steve Beck. Many of you know Steve who once ministered in Ephrata. He's there in Germany in the land of Luther where the gospel has nearly become extinct. In East Germany, they don't have former East Germany. They don't have an idea Communism stamped it out, what the gospel was. And they're discovering it. Pastors are starting churches. You put Steve there. 
as a strategic servant leading that new reformation. Those German pastors and their their people in Heidelberg or wherever they are, probably never going to meet you. They won't know you, but I think they know that God's work is made possible by others. And they say, thanks to God. Thank you, God, for your international church that cares and does this. You see, Jesus said it's important that we have this expression of thanksgiving as a demonstration of true discipleship. It shows when a person gives liberally that the Holy Spirit has really changed their heart. Because it's just, you know what the natural thing is? The natural thing is we're selfish. We want for ourselves and we'll keep things for ourselves. It's unnatural when we become liberal in our giving. Unnatural to the extent that it takes the Holy Spirit to make a person new and give a person new interests and get their clutches off those dollars. You know, I've had people say things like, well, you know, you're preaching on this subject for five weeks. Don't you feel like you're trying to pry dollars out of reluctant hands? I've thought about that, and I've said, no, because you know what? I'm not interested in the dollars that are held by reluctant hands. I'm interested in the people of God who have been shaped by a transformation of the Holy Spirit so that their hands and their minds and their hearts are no longer reluctant. They're now open. They're saying, look what God has done for me. How can I stay closed up in my little selfish shell? One of the ways of worshiping God is to use resources that I have to do his work and see praise go forward to his gospel throughout the world. You know, gratitude is a cornerstone of worship. So when we give, we're giving thanks for God who's given it to us in the first place. We're worshiping, and the whole church is worshiping, and thanksgiving arises to God. Now, I can't close without an emphasis on Paul's last word here in 2 Corinthians 9.15. This passage rises to a climax, and then this verse just kind of stands there almost by itself, as an, and it, it does have an exclamation mark in the English translation. I'm glad it does because it should. It should have two or three, perhaps, if we did that with English. That's bad usage, you ought to know. You use exclamations very sparingly in good English. But this has one. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What's Paul saying? The foundation for everything we do in giving is God's gift. What gift? There isn't any question about what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the gift of Jesus Christ as a crucified, risen Savior, the second person of the Trinity, coming and being offered for unworthy people to be their Lord, their mediator, their Savior. In fact, you know, the the planting and sowing and and reaping uh, dimension applies because You remember that Jesus himself in John 12 once said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears what? Much fruit. He was talking about himself. He was the kernel of wheat dropped into the ground where he had to disappear into the blackness and the horror of death so that he could spring forth 
in a marvelous harvest of righteousness for thousands and thousands and millions of people to participate in. And now he's calling us and saying, join me in the harvest. This is God's harvest. He's gathering in the people he wants to belong to himself. And I hear Paul saying here in verse 15, I know he doesn't say these exact words, but I believe he's saying, when we come around the gift of Christ and respond to God liberally and generously, we are acting most like God himself. Because God himself is fundamentally a giver. God did not have to extend himself. He did not have to send his son. When we sinned against him and spit in his face, he could have abandoned us. But instead he came with a wonderful, splendid gift. My final word to you is this, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Do you serve a stingy God? A God who you think you have to arm wrestle to get a blessing from? You serve some deity that doesn't inhabit the Bible. Our God is the God of abundance, the God of grace, the God of sufficiency and balance in his people's lives. And when our eyes and our hearts are fixed on his Savior, whom he has given, let me tell you, giving for his work will never be a problem. Let's pray. Father, pray that you might have changed us, stretched us, caused us to think in these last weeks, caused us to evaluate where we are in your program of personal giving, whether it be to some change or commitment to this particular pursuing your plan for Westminster or just changing our habits as stewards. I pray that you wouldn't leave your people alone in these matters. Disturb us, prod us, Remind us that we are not ourselves. We have nothing except what we've been given. and We don't come into this world with anything we can take out. You measure us by how we use your gifts. May we do it for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.